Hello and welcome. This is Eileen Campbell-Reed and this afternoon I am interviewing uh, Lee Kravitz uh, who's an author and currently uh, also taking a class that I'm teaching at uh, Union Theological Seminary. Uh, the course is Death, Dying and Bereavement and Lee has a lot of experience um, in writing about and um, uh, other parts of his work that uh, bring him in contact with people who are both facing death and grieving death and uh, caring for those who are. So welcome, Lee, to this conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm delighted you could talk with us today. Um, as you have put it uh, in other times, the the work of uh, understanding death and dying and um, the work of um, caring for those who are at the place of death and dying uh, has been a something of a consuming kind of passion in your life. It's not all the work you've done. You've done other kinds of work, but I'm curious about uh, what got you started and interested in um, doing this kind of uh, a work in the world or trying to understand better what was happening with people who were at the point of death. I think a couple things when I was young, meaning when I was a teenager, well, I was born eight years after the Holocaust. So in my family, a Jewish family in Cleveland, everyone was consumed by what was that? What did it mean? We can never let it happen again. And I used to think about that a lot. Mm. I used to at night put a pillow on my based so that I could empathize more with those who were, were in the, the gas chambers. And then when I was in high school and my grandfathers died, mm. I got a taste of the Jewish way of death, dying, and funerals then, which were elaborate affairs uh, with expensive coffins, very status-focused. Um, it seemed to, to not do a good job of uh, honoring uh, the people that I'd loved mm -hmm. and telling their story. And so it left me feeling very incomplete. Mm. By the time when I graduated college, I, I took a Land Rover from London to Calcutta for a couple years, went over land. And in India, I encountered a death in a different way. I spent mm. uh, several days at the ghats, the steps leading down to the Ganges River in Varanasi, where Hindus uh, get cremated. And just sitting there and watching that, I saw another culture's way of dealing with uh, the enormity of death and dying. Um, and I kept getting interested in those cultural facets uh, of death. In 1985, I was in Nicaragua during the, the, the war there, the Contra Sandinista Civil War, and I attended funerals for civilians who had been uh, killed in the, in the midst of that and saw grieving in a, in a different way. In 1991, um, I went over to the Soviet Union after it uh, collapsed. If you remember when Yeltsin went up on the uh, tank and I went there to do some reporting. And on a side trip, I went to Latvia which had just become independent that week. And I went to find out what would have happened to me if my grandparents had not um, left Latvia. What would my life be like? Mm. 
My journey to Latvia ended in a in, in a pit out in a forest outside of Riga, where forty thousand Jews had been massacred by Nazis and buried there. Well, I wouldn't have uh, lived there. The next year, I was traveling in Indonesia and took a, a trip in Sulawesi, one of the islands up to Taraja land, where there is the uh, most uh, elaborate, interesting, intriguing death ritual and feast, uh, uh, an animist inflected, uh, and, and to be there witnessing for four days the funeral of a woman who had been dead four years, yet living dead in, with her, her family was, was extraordinary. You know, and so on, and 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 so forth. Death kept drawing me in to try to understand, feel what it meant, see how different cultures did it. In Prague, if you've ever been there and seen the Jewish cemetery there, which yeah. you have the layers on layers of graves that were 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 built there, it provokes the imagination. You know, it, 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 it makes you ask questions of life, of God, of, uh, of everything. And then after my career as an editor, I was editor of Parade Magazine, the largest, most widely read publication in the United States for years. After I lost that job, I started uh, writing, I wrote two memoirs, one in both. Uh, one was about uh, addressing the unfinished emotional and spiritual business in my life, and the other one was about my spiritual journey to find a spiritual home for myself. And in both of those came at a time where lots of people were dying in, in, in my life. I had an, a number of friends died. There were tragic deaths. There were suicides. There were all sorts of... and. Uh, and I was really trying to understand where, where I stood as I was pursuing and asking questions about the meaning of my own life, about those uh, relationships that were unresolved, about what did the lives of those who were close to me who had died in the ways they did, um, what did those lives mean? I found myself thinking more and more about death. I found myself after my pilgrimage through Buddhism, Hinduism, and, uh, and, and various other wisdom traditions, landing back at my birthright religion of Judaism in a sort of mystical, progressive uh, renewal congregation, a shul you know, which harkened back in lots of it tra its traditions to uh, um, Hasidic traditions. It drew from a lot of different areas of Judaism. And what we were doing at the time I joined was beginning what's called the Hever Kedisha. Uh, Hever means society, Kedisha means holy. It's a holy burial society. And it's a, it's, it's a tradition, and this is, you know, fascinating, that began to, to reemerge in the 1960s. When I was growing up, and I, I went to those funerals with my grandfather, the status yeah. uh, conscious, unsatisfactory, 
uh, endings to their lives. It was in the context of what was happening in America. Uh, the American way of death, as Mitchford was writing, the for-profit commercialization of the funeral industry, which seemed so in conflict with the more spiritual aspects that I've been pursuing in my life and where I'd landed at that point in my life. And Hippocadesha has been a growing, still not mainstream, but growing movement. And I'll explain what it is, but first give you a little context for, for, for what it is. It harkens back to the rabbinical Talmudic tradition of the years 200 to 500. Uh, uh, it's rooted in the Bible. Uh, there, in, during the, from 500 to 1500 AD, there was a dark age in which Jews really didn't talk about death or have any uh, major. But then there was a Spanish Inquisition where, 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 where uh, uh, Jews were dying and had to bury their dead. Every time a Jewish in the diaspora, Jewish diaspora, the first thing that a community would build would be a cemetery. And they face that uh, issue of how to get the body in the grave, you know, rules and procedures uh, evolve. In Prague, in the cemetery that you saw in 1564 was actually when the first documented Hebrew Holy Burial Society um, happened. And then it, in the more Hasidic in Eastern Europe, communities of the 19th century, it grew. So what is a Hebrew It's a holy burial society it exists um, to give loving care to, to, the, to, a, to a, a person who dies in their families. Yeah along the whole continuum of care from Bikur Cholam in, in Judaism, that means visiting the sick, one of the greatest mitzvahs, mm -hmm. to the time between death and burial, and also, of course, to uh, giving comfort to the mourners and everything in between. So the society is a group of people who really feel called in the community to deliver that level mm -hmm. of care when, when, when people die. And there are a couple of elements of it. Yeah. One of the elements, maybe it's best if I, a person dies, the deceased is called the Met. Okay. And the group uh, watches over the body of the Met from death till burial, okay. usually in two hour uh, slots where you, in a sense, you midwife the soul, you accompany the soul of that person by, mm -hmm. by saying uh, Psalms, being contemplative. Um, I, when I'm doing, sh uh, being a shomer, uh, which means guard, I usually go at 1 or 2 a.m. or 4 to 5 in the quietest, most liminal period. And the period people don't really, uh, not many people have the freedom to go at that time. Yeah. Sit outside the refrigerator in the, ba in, the, in the basement where the body is kept. 
and uh, and say Psalms or or look at other texts that deal with death. Now this is a stranger. This is someone I usually don't know. Sometimes it is someone I know. And it's a very sort of sacred time. This is holy work. Yeah, can I ask another question? There? Yeah, please do. In the cold space, the refrigerated space where the body is at rest. Yeah. That in the, uh, in the what kind of, is it in the uh, a morgue or is it in a funeral home? Is it in a synagogue? Where, where is this? No, it's, I'm sorry, it's in the basement of a funeral home. Okay, all right. Yeah, some funeral homes, not all. Okay. Uh, we'll have these areas for um, uh, watching. Okay. And so you sit by, outside and there's like a beat up old chair and a bunch of psalm and prayer books battered that have been used. This is predominantly an orthodox okay. uh, tradition, ever Kadisha. Occasionally, you'll see someone else who's doing uh, something with another body met. But you sit there, and really, uh, you're there alone in, in, in time with uh, that person trying, trying your, your hardest to just send um, vibes of compassion and respect and love that says that you, even though your your body, you know, your body, you're dead. Human beings have dignity, you know. Uh, and so you get yourself into, into that. So that's where you do it. You do it in the bottom of the funeral home usually. Some people do it in a more comfortable room near where the coffins are sold. But I like the refrigerated room. So that's one aspect of it. You try to keep the body um, the other part of it is tahara. Now, this is the ritual purification of the body. Okay. And uh, it, it involves washing and dressing uh, the body. And I'm part of the tahara team. Men do men, women do women. Um, this is a really sort of amazing and delicate, it sounds spooky to a lot of people that you would be there sort of giving all this loving attention to someone who had just died and really cleaning their body and cleaning the blood and uh, under the nails, washing with the warm cloth, so tenderly the body that lay is there. There's one person who's the head and the, Jew, and the Hebrew word for head is rosh, who is kind of directing it, usually the most experienced person in the group. And again, prayers and psalms are said, and, uh, and it ends with uh, a sort of ritual washing, water is poured over uh, the body, and the body is dried. It's very delicate work and hard work because you have to lift up the body and, uh, and maneuver it. And then when all that's done, you dress the deceased. And what you dress the deceased in is just either a linen or a cotton muslin, uh, what do they call it? Shroud, wrapping. 
And it's the same wrapping symbolically that the high priest in, in ancient Israel would enter the temple in Jerusalem on Yom Kippur, the holiest day, mm -hmm. so that everybody who is buried, no matter what your status is in, in, uh, in Judaism, enters the same way. Mm -hmm. Adorn like the priest, because symbolically, that's how you should be uh, prepared to greet God. Okay. Your soul or spirit should, should greet God. And then there are other things about uh, rituals involved in the dressing of uh, wrapping um, uh, a sort of belt around the shroud and tying it in the Hebrew letter of Shin and uh, and if the person, if the male had a prayer shawl, mm -hmm. prayer shawl can go in with him. There's dirt from Israel mm. in the coffin. Yeah. The coffin is very important because part of this tradition is, as I said, uh, a reaction to all that for-profit exploitation of people at the moment of the death. Yeah. The favored preferred coffin is a plain pine box. Yeah. It doesn't have nails in it. It just sort of fits mm. together. Fit together. Oh, yeah, fits together with little, you know, joints. Yeah. And the, there are holes in the bottom so that, you know, the body can decompose, um, become part of the earth. So it's also an ecological movement, Hepatidesia. Green yeah. burial movement is part of that. And, uh, and, and, and uh, so that's part of, um, Tahara, and a very important thing is uh, that I do want to say is there's no perfect way to do it. It's always like learning how to do it anew. Mm -hmm. Just do your best. And so there's a prayer that you say before you begin this whole process where you ask for forgiveness for any unintentional harm you might do to the met, to the deceased. Can't really remember the exact. Uh, I was wondering if there was one of the Psalms that you especially like to read or say that um, you might share just a bit of, of that with us. Do you say it in in um, in Hebrew or do you say it in English? I, I would. I do it generally um, both. I mean, I do the twenty third Psalm, of course, and uh, anything else that uh, sort of puts me in feeling of that. Uh, you know, meeting, meeting death in some spiritual way. Also, we read from Song of Songs, you know, that notion where the, the sort of bride uh, is just, it's just beautiful. Could be James Joyce's dead, even though, you know, short story, even though it's not a, a Jewish thing, sometimes puts me in the mood to, to um, uh, be there, be present, because that's what you're going to be, to sit there in that silence for um, uh, uh, the person who has died. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that Tahara is the, the considered the greatest mitzvah in Judaism. Mm -hmm. And the reason it is, is because it's giving without ever getting anything in return. That person who's just died, you know, what can they give you? You know, of course, they give you a lot. They give you yeah. this tremendous opportunity to be face-to-face -face with death. Yeah. 
your own mortality and to uh, be conversant in a way that so many people in our society aren't about death. To be there with the body demystifies uh, the the whole uh, uh, process of dying. So it's a tremendous gift to, to the person giving it, but technically it's the highest form of giving as well in Judaism. It's, it's viewed as holy work. Let me ask you a couple of other questions um, about uh, the, the holy burial process, the Shiva Kadisha. Um, when you're sitting with the the Met uh, overnight, for what's what's give us an idea of the time frame? Um, say a person dies um, at home or in the hospital, and then they're brought uh, to to the place where they'll be prepared uh, and washed for burial. What's the time frame like from all of that, and then through the time of the funeral and burial? Well, you know, in Judaism, it's incumbent to bury the person quickly. Yes. Uh, within 48 hours, certainly. Usually a call when someone dies, be it at home or in a hospital, a call goes to their rabbi or to the funeral home uh, director uh, to begin the process of, of uh, preparing the body. A call goes out to the head of the Hever Kadisha who recruits um, a group to watch over the body and guard, guard over the body, you know, usually online with a char slots for the next 24 hours divided into two hour segments. Uh, you can sit, I always sit alone, but there can also be two people doing it. So that's that's the, the the timing. Usually, the tahara may take place before the sitting or some other time, depending on if other taharas are scheduled. Okay. It's often hard to get enough people to do a tahara. I mean, this is like you, you don't know when somebody's going to die, and you don't know who's going to be in town or out of town, or right. So it's a real logistically. Uh, tough uh, situation with phone trees and email trees. So that's, that's the timetable on that. And then of course, if it's in a funeral home, usually the funeral itself takes place in the, in the funeral home. Sure. Burial is uh, usually directly after that. A memorial service may be a, a month later. And in, in a Jewish, in the whole Jewish uh, continuum of end of life, then come sitting Shiva, mm -hmm. which is being in the mourning process at the home of the mourners and so on and so forth. Well, uh, it occurs to me to ask, I know that it's my understanding that in uh, New York where you live, where the school uh, exists, been many decades I think it's been a hundred years since there's been a place to actually bury someone in Manhattan um, so are where how far away do families have to go to find a Jewish burial ground uh, I know that they go to Brooklyn Greenwood Cemetery in Manhattan there's no place nothing no uh, you can go 
I think there's one in Queens. There are in West Long Island. Um, uh, I will probably choose to be buried up here where I have a second home near Rhinebeck. I've got to find a, a Jewish place. I may not be able to. And our, our, to get our, a burial. our most, of, I was going to ask if most of the Jewish cemeteries are allowing a green burial at this point in time in the boroughs. I'm just, all of the New York uh, rules and laws are new to me. And uh, yeah. because our class is there in the city, I, I think it's worth talking about that a little bit. I didn't know till I came to Union that no one had been buried in Manhattan for a hundred years. Um, yeah. So I, I've learned a lot in, in preparing for this class, but uh, are, are green burials common practice or growing? Well, I know, I know in Brooklyn at Greenwood uh, Cemetery where Amy Goodman is a very sort of progressive funeral director who I hope you uh, meet at some point. She's, uh, she's really innovative. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a demand for it now. There's a demand. People uh, of, of uh, my generation, just an old generation, I'm elderly, and, uh, and, and younger are, are really requiring that, are, are, are asking the question of uh, how do they want to leave and leave the earth and, yeah. and doing So that's, that, that seems to be, uh, the, there's definitely growing demand. Right. Well, let's let's uh, shift to the the present day for a moment. Um, what's the impact of uh, COVID nineteen and this time of pandemic where we're isolated from each other on all these very um, embodied and um, intimate practices that you've been describing for us? What's happening now? It's been profound, the impact in so many ways on um, those who are dying alone, not being able to have someone holding their hand, sitting with them, comforting them, a relative, to the, the loved ones who can't be there for yeah. that person, can't have last words, to the rabbis who can't be present at the bedside, so as you hear on the news, uh, so many people are dying with strangers uh, as the most important part of them. In terms of the rituals itself, all around the nation now, uh, Tahara isn't being done. Too dangerous, too risky. There are laws in many states against that close contact with uh, other people. Uh, funerals are being done, uh, you know, virtually at graveside or uh, graveside with a couple people and virtually or uh, the memorial service as postponed will be the bigger event. I've taken part in being a showmare virtually, wow. which is a pretty, pretty strange thing. Usually you do it as a group. Yeah. And uh, you sort of do your readings in silence over several, several hours. The point is to, to have something going on to kind of accompany and midwife the soul as best you can, you know, as best you can. Um, so today, presumably the body's in one place yeah. for burial and you're in another place, maybe you're home two hours away and you're 
praying in your two hour time frame for the body that's um, the met that's resting elsewhere and that's the way it's happening right now yeah yeah the body will be in the in the morgue in the refrigerator and there's no body present part of this practice is to be there physically with with the body um, today or yesterday I was on a zoom conference with uh, some of the leaders of the Hever Kadisha movement nationally, people from maybe 20 different cities in Canada, talking about uh, uh, the intricacies of, or what's going on in terms of rules and protocols, government rules, or their own synagogue's rules in this time of COVID-19. Yeah. Not uniform, different uh, places allow for different things with funerals. Um, and most of them did say that find some silver lining in this that uh, when they're participating in a you know being a showmare or in a funeral from afar, they concentrate more on the liturgy on the words of it than they might otherwise. Mm. Um, and the big question, and we're going to be looking at it in, in in coming weeks, is how do you serve at a time like this? How do you serve the family and the dying person? And also, how do you prepare yourself to be of service? Which is, how do you deal with your own uh, emotional fears, anxieties, um, sadness, grief? Right. So there's an understanding that self-care is involved during this period of time if you're going to be a, a, a good caretaker. Um, I was deeply moved by um, uh, the good, powerful intention of everyone on that Zoom call. They are building a movement. And, they're and it's a movement rooted in, 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 in Judaism. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing uh, that I've learned through this whole process and that gets in your class and uh, that gets uh, reaffirmed all the time to me, is that in every culture, death is not a casual thing. Mm -hmm. Death gives urgency and meaning to life. Mm -hmm. It connects us to our ancestors and to future generations. And one way that we um, spiritually grow and contribute is, is by helping people through this pivotal time, which is also a liminal time, which allows a deeper a spiritual experience than you often get day by day. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to, into asking you, um, you're 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 approaching what I was wondering about, which is uh, after decades of exploring, uh, long before Caitlin Dowdy even came along, you were exploring death uh, rituals around the globe, yeah. and um, you've been thinking about this. and And I'm wondering, uh, really, from your childhood, you tell us this has been something you've been thinking about, wondering about. Um, how would you say you have? changed your own what, what what's changed about your understanding about your 
mortality and what you want. Uh, you just said it, it impacts the way you live your life. So there's yeah. two questions there. One, how are you living differently because of what you've learned? And two, how are you thinking about your own death and mortality at this time? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, it, it's interesting because as a journalist, a lot of my life, has been as a observer, a reporter. Sometimes I pursued things. I did a lot of reporting when I was young in developing countries. There was a sense that this stuff is exotic, it's interesting, it's intriguing, it's odd, some of these rituals. Now I feel very humbled by growing older you know, by getting closer to my own death, I'm 66 now, by having so many friends die, having my father die in the last year and be want, want to be cremated at a time where I am so involved in a, in a tradition that, mm. that, that really doesn't, you know, where the body, the actual body is, is uh, holy. And that was really hard for me. Yeah. It was hard for me to, to, to grieve, to mourn, but he wanted just to be cremated and, and then his ashes mixed with those of his pet. And my mother, when she dies, and I, when he, she learned of that plan said, no way, I didn't like the pet and I didn't like your father. So I don't wanna, wanna, <laughs> wanna be there. <laughs> I didn't get closure. I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. I've written about it in, in my first book. I wanted to overcome that cycle of dysfunction. I didn't get closure until six months later when I could hold a memorial service in Cleveland and eulogize my father with people from all over the country who didn't particularly like him or each other there. And somehow it became a unifying uh, uh, event. It was a way to... Uh, take care of that form of uh, unfinished business. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. Um, uh, I, 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 I think that if you would have talked to me five years ago, I didn't know how I wanted to die mm. or my burial. And now I think I want a Tahara. I know I want a Tahara. Why do I want a Tahara? Not only because I want to have a Tahara so people can get practice on me. The only way this movement and tradition is going to continue is if people really get to do it and have the type of experience I'm having. Yeah. So my family thinks it's crazy. Uh, my uh, humanistic Jewish wife, who's an atheist, and my children think it's crazy that I spend so much time around death mm -hmm. and, uh, and that I would choose that for myself. Yeah but I have a pretty clear picture that I want it for myself because I'm part of this tradition. As part of my legacy is to, to keep this alive for the future and as a way to resist uh, the dehumanizing effects of commercialization yeah. in, in the issue. So that's how mine has changed is that I'm embracing a more traditional uh, way of doing it. Another uh, thing that's happened along the way from my first book, mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I'll tell you one story here which has to do with this. It's part of my progress. I, I was editor, I, I said, of Parade, which 
you know, I had reached the top of my profession, journalism. Um, I had also been, you know, creating magazines and so on for uh, 20 years. And then in 2007, at the beginning of the sort of great disruption of print, I got fired for, and didn't, for no stated reason. Mm. And I went into a very low point of feeling, you know, anger, betrayal, not knowing what my future would be, how I'm going to take care of my kids and so on. And instead of trying to get another job in journalism, I went on 10 journeys to take care, to make amends and take care of the unfinished emotional business in my life and wrote a book about every one of those journeys. And uh, the book, you know, met the cultural moment. I was on the Today Show and on every major show, Reader's Digest did a story about me. So I hit a chord. But the story that really moved me to to uh, keep going on that journey was that I had a, my, my aunt, who was the person who loved me most when I was young, no one had seen her in 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were told we couldn't, she was schizophrenic. She'd been institutionalized. And I said, this is crazy. And I went to Cleveland, found out where she was. And for the next year, spent a lot of time with her. And in the process, everybody was presuming and assuming she wanted to be cremated. Nobody knew. But I found out, no, she wanted to be buried next to her husband. I also went to the cemetery and found out that the plot had been paid for by her husband. She died a few years later. I made sure she got buried where she wanted to with her husband. And that felt like there was some peace and closure in that. Yeah. And the only other thing I want to say about is that when I was doing unfinished business, um, what I was doing in my own life is what people do on their deathbed, um, is trying to... uh, uh, tell a coherent story of your life, take care of the loose ends, reach out to others so that you can have peace in the end and go out peacefully. You know, we're wired to do that. Uh, and it's just the way we're wired in our brains to do that emotionally. It's true. And so that got me thinking I was doing a so person my, my message to the world was don't wait till your deathbed do it when you're middle-aged you're younger so others can participate can get joy in closure and peace from your efforts from your gestures so that got me oriented towards death as well well that's amazing I I appreciate this story so much because so many people just keep telling themselves, I have time, I can deal with that later, or maybe I can t- deal, you know, put that off. And um, if nothing else, this last month plus of all of us being isolated from each other has brought death face to face with everyone. And what you're saying about not putting off caring for the unfinished business, tying up some loose ends, or at least attending to them if we can't tie them up, right? Right, right. Um, Attending to them is a gift to ourselves and to the people that we love and makes um, our death 
less intimidating and less something to dread. Um, I, I don't know, maybe it doesn't make it less intimidating, but to think about going to death without a lot of resentment or a lot of unfinished right. um, aspects of one's life does feel more um, like a peaceful possibility. Um, so I appreciate those stories that you've shared with us so much. And, and it's amazing that it's like we're getting a wake-up call nationally that a nation that doesn't talk about death, even though there's a lot more of it now, denies death, can't even imagine most people, yeah. can't even imagine dying, they can imagine other people dying, is now waking up to the fact that death can come at any time. Yeah. And that life is precious as a result and is calling up old friends that they neglected and not putting off, as you say, not putting off to, till tomorrow these things. It is a gift. Definitely a gift. Well, thank you so much for sharing these gifts of your stories and your learning and your experience with us and telling us about the um, rituals that have made your life richer and fuller. And um, it, it is truly a gift for us to be able to hear those things from you and uh, for the class and then for other people who might also be able to watch and hear this conversation. So I'm really grateful for your time today, Lee. And thank you, and thank you for a wonderful and important class.